0: Second Samuel 6, 1-15, the ark brought to Jerusalem. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Balal in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned before the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with the castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry before the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, "'How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, wearing a linen of ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So often as I'm studying a text, I think to myself, what are some contemporary parallels to ancient stories like this one? And this week I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and there aren't any, at least not that I can remember. This is a pretty unique story, in its own way a rather bizarre story, however, Given my inclination towards celebration as it relates to sporting events, I did think a one, not as sacred, I grant you, but um, a number of years ago now, too long, the Indianapolis Colts finally won their first Super Bowl. Remember that? Yes, I do. And if you're a real fan, you didn't just watch the game, you watched it to the very end, and you watched all the celebrations that followed and all that kind of stuff. And if you remember, uh, you remember, don't you? when the Lombardi Trophy came down the field and all the players were right reaching out their hands and touching the Lombardi Trophy and nobody was struck dead. It was really a great moment. They celebrated. They even went home to Indianapolis with the trophy and they paraded it through the streets and it was gigantic and fun and glorious. Can we even use that word? That's about as close as it gets to this story. But this story really is different, isn't it? qualitatively different. It's about the holiness of God. And the history of this ark is far grander than the Lombardi trophy. It starts all the way back when Moses got the law of God and got the instructions on how to construct this thing called the tabernacle. Instructions on how to create this Ark of the Covenant, which was not much more than a footlocker of a king with angelic beings crafted out of gold arching over it, the so-called mercy seat between it where the real presence of God dwelt in a symbolic way. That was what was brought in on that day, the Ark of the Covenant. There were some special instructions, very explicit, and everyone knew them concerning the Ark of the Covenant. First, don't touch it. If you touch it, you're going to die. As a matter of fact, it's so sacred, we want you to carry it on poles with rings that are attached. It should be God's holy ark. On one occasion, uh, the Philistines, fighting the people of God, uh, conquered them in a battle and they captured the ark and they took it to their part of the country. And while there, a huge plague broke out. It was disastrous. People were dying one right after another, and they realized the presence of the ark, the very presence of God, which was not only huge, but in the face of, shall we say, Dagon, the God of the Philistines, and knocked the statue down, that God couldn't overcome the God of Israel and this ark, and they said, we got to get this thing out of here. They put it on a cart. Pulled by oxen and they sent it back to Israel. Just let the cart go with the oxen. Nobody really driving it. It entered Israel and when it entered Israel they rejoiced and celebrated. They had a grand old time. Perhaps not unlike this occasion. The ark of God was back. Then of course Saul is the king of Israel eventually. And this Saul, the king of Israel, well he's not the kind of king they'd hope for. He's a king that's qualitatively different than David. And if you read parallel accounts of these stories, they're fascinating. You have them in 1 and 2 Samuel, but you had a lot of parallel accounts in 1 and 2 Chronicles, another description of some of these same events. In 1 Chronicles 13, verse 3, we read a description of this particular event that we don't see in 2 Samuel. And it goes like this. It says essentially this. David said, let's bring the ark to the city because... In the day of Saul, it wasn't inquired of. Nobody cared. It was just there. That statement hangs in the air as a poignant description of the kingship of Saul, not really consulting with God. So David says, let's bring it back in, and of course they bring it back in, this time again on a cart with oxen. Kind of ironic, isn't it? The last time on a cart with oxen was with the Philistines. David should have known better. Here it comes into the city on a cart, and Uzzah, a man watching the parade, sees the oxen slip and the cart tip and he's concerned about the Ark of the Covenant and he reaches out to study it and he's struck dead. We do our best not to avoid difficult texts at ECC. This one's a problem. I mean, it's a problem for David. Look what happens. David's so angry with God. Are you serious, God. Can I place words in David's mouth? Uzzah meant no harm. As a matter of fact, it was an act of respect. It was an act of compassion and kindness and reverence, even though the text called it your reverence. He didn't mean any harm. That must have been what was going through David's mind when he was angry with God over the death of Uzzah. And David's so terrified, he says, I can't have that ark anywhere around me. And he leaves it there time passes and the house of Odom, edom Obed-Edom is blessed by God because of the presence of the ark. You wouldn't believe the blessings of God, people must have told David, for this house of Obed-Edom. And David, can I be critical for a moment? Can I be cynical? Can I be like you just for a second in the sermon? David says, I want some of that. I want that kind of blessing. We're going to go get that ark. Now, that's my cynical side. My other part tells me something else about this story, and that's that David is right in retrieving the ark. It belonged in the city, it wasn't the personal property of a family that could be blessed by this charm from God. God never wanted it used that way. It was proper of David to bring it back. It was for the people of Israel. It was the presence symbolically of God. So David, even though perhaps a bit selfish, also properly corporate as the king, brings back the ark to the city. And when he brings it back, uh, there's this incredible festive occasion. But I want to remind you of what preceded it. We already said it was the death of Uzzah. It seems so respectful, didn't it? And innocent. And a compassionate act to keep the ark from falling to the ground. I'd like to, if you'll allow me, to make a contemporary parallel to your life and to mine. But God... You say to God, My actions were well intentioned. But God says, No. But God, this act, this activity, it's motivated by love. But God says, No. Oh, but God, you don't understand. It's an act of incredible kindness. But God says no. I've heard this many times, but you don't understand we're in love. How could this be wrong? But God says no. I want to suggest something that we frequently focus on the mystery of God as it relates to His nature. We look at those divine conundrums like free will and sovereignty, choice, and we say, oh, we just can't understand the mysteries of God. And we can't. We look at his foreknowledge and we don't understand it. It's the mystery of God. We look at the times where God doesn't intervene in the face of pure evil and we say, I can't understand it. It is the mystery of God. We see all those things and we attribute it to God who's incomprehensible and beyond us. His thoughts are above us. His ways are above us. And we cannot understand and we're right, but there's something else. There is the mystery of God that relates to command. God often commands us, fill in the gaps, my friends, in your life, to do or not to do this, and you do not understand, nor do I. It's the mystery of God when he commands things that seem counterintuitive to our own human disposition. You see, our culture, predominantly in America and in the 21st century, thinks it deserves an answer for everything and thinks it deserves to understand because it thinks it really can understand all things. And my suggestion is that will never be true. Not when it comes to the mysteries of God, not just as to his providence, but frequently Frequently as to its commands. But before I leave this point and move on, I want to suggest that our attitude should be this the same attitude that in retrospect we knew we should have had as children. When our parents said no and we could not understand. But yet they knew something. About the situation, about us, that we could not understand ourselves. And so, we didn't. There's a whole lot of things like that in the Christian life. And my suspicion is one of them's gonna raise its head on Monday. So as you walk into this week, remind yourself that the mystery of God sometimes relates to his commands and you just must accept it. But on to the rest of the story, the much better part of the story really. Now we're going to get joyful, okay? The procession is is gigantic and it's delightful. It's grand, it's got priests, it's got sacrifices, it's got song, it's got dance, it's got harps, it's got lyres, it's got tambourines and cymbals, and we know all those, and it's got a what? A sistrum? What's a sistrum? Well, it's not what you think it is. It's not a big hole in the ground for other things. It's actually a musical instrument. The best we can tell, it was like a big shaker that they would shake with beads in it to make noise. So they're coming in, dancing, and playing all these things and rattling that shaker. For those of you who are further in the back, you don't know that second service, the kids are up here on the front row, right? Do you just kind of know that? Um, They're up here on the front row singing and dancing and shaking these little eggs through shakers. And on any number of Sundays when the sermon has gone really bad, in the first sermon and I'm down, first service and I'm down in the second, if I just look over at those little kids... (laughs) are dancing around and shaking their shakers. (laughs) It takes me to a new place. They're just delighted in the praise of the people of God. And sometimes they shake at the wrong place. You know, Rob's trying to get real quiet with a song, and they're just shaking away. (laughs) But isn't it okay? Rejoice in the Lord, so many texts say. And David does it. The celebration includes music and food and dance. But more than that, it includes a king who, unlike his typical demeanor as king and kingly, goes into the street in front of the ark and dances before the Lord. They say he spins and jumps and dances, and he's wearing a white ephod, and that's all. And he's dancing in front of everybody, but really, really As the text says, he's dancing before the Lord. He's almost unconscious with joy. He's almost out of his mind in gratitude to God for the entrance of the ark into his city. It doesn't matter what people around him are thinking or what they're looking at. He dances for joy because he's dancing before God. Now when that activity is over, we move into the second part of the text that wasn't read. David is delighted. He sends home with the people raisin breads to bless their families and their households. This is a grand day. And David goes home to bless his own household. You can imagine he's delighted and he's excited. And here's how the text reads. When David returned home to bless his household... Michael, daughter of Saul, who was his wife, came out to meet him and said, hear it sarcastically, who, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself this day. Disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. Imagine um, your emotional high and emotional low at that point. You've been up there in the stratosphere, and now you come home, and you're ridiculed. You came home only to bring the joy to the family and to bless your family, and you're belittled. Now, this is more than a marital dispute, right? This is a bigger story than that. David turns to Michael after she makes that statement and says, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from that house when he appointed me ruler over the God's people or the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before him. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But these slave girls you spoke of, I'll be held in honor by them. The text ends by saying Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her birth. Just an insertion here. um, This was already a troubled marriage. There was difficulty. It was one of those kingly arranged marriages, as many of them were. It was the wedding of the house of Saul to the house of David. And it never went well from the start. And there's some sense in which Michael is not just Michael in this text. Michael is the extended shadow of the kingship of Saul. Michael is descriptive of the way Saul would have been had he been there. Saul, the regal, pompous, elegant, self-centered king, would never have danced before the Lord and the people like that. And Michael, in effect, is saying, My husband, the King David, he's vulgar. The uh, statement that she had no children to the end of her days probably is symbolic of the fact that they just didn't have a relationship at all after that. But more importantly, it's symbolic um, and prophetic of the reality that Saul's kingdom would end, it'd be cut off. There's no more of Saul's line in kingship. I want you to notice a couple of things from the text as we conclude here. Um, The first is this. The incredible juxtaposition of absolute terror in the face of God and overwhelming joy. Right? It's the way the narrator gives it to us. He doesn't give us the big time lapse between the terror and the joy. He just paints the whole picture as a running story. And here's David quaking in his boots when he sees Uzzah go down. He's angry with God. He doesn't know what to do. He's terrified. He doesn't want the ark anywhere near him. It reminds you of Isaiah in the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. I'm a dead man in his presence. It's worship. And at the same time, on the other side, you see David dancing before the ark that he literally quaked in the presence of fear when it enters the city. It seems symbolic of worship, really, doesn't it? Doesn't it remind you of what God calls us to? That he calls us to the theme of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth, is filled with your glory. And in your presence, I'm a dead man. And at the same time, this is the most incredible, loving, gracious, marvelous God that I can't even stop singing and dancing and shouting and eating and living because you're such a wonderful God. I think that's worship, my friends. It's both One informs the other. It seems to me that at least the latter part of this passage reminds us that the worship of God ought to be ecstatic. It ought to include every expression of our humanness. You see, it's not to tell us that we ought to use harp and lyre and sistrums and cymbals. That's not the point. The point is, are you human? Yes. Are you made in the image of God? Yes. What is your expression of praise? Figure it out and do it. Praise God with it. Everything that's a part of you, it can be an act of worship. Uh, you know, this service is a little more contemporary than the first. <laughs> that's an overstatement. Um, it's way more contemporary. And there's other services that are way different than this one. This whole thing about dancing—I I think Rob's the only one that dances. Did you? You know, he gets into it. He dances a little bit up here before the Lord. I don't think he's dancing before you. I hope you're not. No, I didn't think so. I, we probably are not going to do that in the second worship set. Or maybe you'll break out. That'd be fine. The point is. We express ourselves differently, right? And culturally, it's huge. I'll never forget traveling in different parts of the world like South America and especially in Africa where expressions of joy and worship are just over the top. They're just delightful. I mean, I can't do them. I can't make my body do that stuff. I mean, I don't think I've got the ability. I know I don't have the rhythm. But it's just ecstatic. (laughs) In Ghana, where we support David Mensah and his wonderful ministry there, I, I've worked with the people so often, and it's just a delight when the offering takes place. It's, it's the women who lead. The women come out of their seats And usually the older woman first. And she starts down the aisle and she's moving and everything's shaking. I mean everything is moving. This woman can move and she's probably 80 years old. And she's dancing down the aisle. And then another woman comes behind her and it's a chain reaction of events. And they walk down and they start dancing around a circle where there's a plate. Where they're dropping offerings. And they got nothing to drop. Drop. They've got so little, and they delight in the ability they have to give what they have, and it's a joyful experience, and they dance before God. And then the men of the pastors, you know, they join in. They come down off the platform, and I'm trying to figure out, how am I (laughs) supposed to do this? I want to be in it, but I can't. I just don't have it. I'm going to get dance lessons sometime, but I don't think I'll bring it to worship. <laughs> God says use it all. Dance before the Lord. Um, in the first service, it's rather traditional. In the second, it's a little louder. You, you know that in this service, the second service, we bring over the choir uh, on communion Sunday, right? And they sing a wonderful anthem. And I've really delighted in your appreciation of them and that music, because it's not what you usually do. I wish, honestly, in the best of all possible worlds, we could move past accommodation into integration. I wish, like me, you could enjoy three different worship services every Sunday, because they're really all different. And delight in all three of them. I actually wish next Sunday you guys would just switch. the whole service would switch. You'd go to the first, and everybody in the first would come to the second, but the music wouldn't change. But um, accommodation's probably about as good as it gets, I guess. We just thank God for the other and let them rejoice in their way. I, I run and um, I run in my community, and a couple weeks ago I was running um, and out at the end of the driveway, there were two objects with uh, signs on them, just a white piece of paper with handwritten pen, sign on it. And I run slow enough that I could read them. And so um, I read both of them. Uh, one of them was taped to a vacuum sweeper. And the sign said, free. Wife wanted a Dyson. <laughs> um, and then... Right next to it was a rather small flat screen TV. It said free. Husband wanted a bigger TV. (laughs) So, I mean, those people were accommodating of each other, right? I mean, okay, you can have what you want. You go to the basement. You go upstairs. I'm good. Just give me my sweeper. I I wish we were better than that, right? (laughs) I wish we could enjoy the other. Because God wants us to delight in his goodness as we worship in spirit and in truth. I uh, also realize that when I hear this story, I can't help but think of Psalm 150 that we sang, well, shouted not long ago. I wonder, really, if David might have penned those words after this event. Praise God. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Just a couple of uh, things in closing. Um. This instruction on praise, which I'm using the passage to be, I would suggest um, reminds us of a couple of things concerning the effect of praise. When you enter into praise, it reminds you and I that we're absolutely, totally dependent upon God. We don't feel that way most of the time. We fix our own problems, and if we don't, we pay somebody else to do it. And the sun comes up because it's supposed to. And the rain comes down because the meteorologist tells us about a front that's approaching. And we become thoroughly secular. The people of God are called to view all of that reality, scientific and otherwise, and look at it and say, praise Thank you, God, for the light of this new day. Thank you for the water that is pure. Thank you for the sky that's delightful. Thank you for everything, because everything is from your hands. It reminds us that we are totally, for every breath, dependent upon God when we enter fully into praise. It also, I believe, when we enter fully into praise, guards us against self-centeredness. If you fully enter into praise, really, you stop thinking about yourself. Your mind leaves that introspective place called me with the famous pra- phrase you've heard before, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. Yeah. Um, it takes you away from that, doesn't it, when you enter into praise? I, I think that phrase is pretty true of me sometimes. I'm not that great, but I think I am because I think about me all the time. Praise reminds me to lift myself above that. But there's a third thing. It's sort of the flip side of that coin. I think when I enter into praise, I not only move away from self-centeredness, but I move towards delight in the image of God that has been stamped upon me. I saved that one for last for a very real reason. I don't do that well. I don't know what your hang-up is. And it might not be apparent that that's one of mine. Yes, I may look self-confident and delighted on Sunday morning to enter into praise and to preach for you. But honestly, when I leave, it's not that any longer. You see, because of who I am, Sunday after Sunday, I get in my vehicle and start home. And self-doubt overwhelms, even self-loathing. You didn't get it right that time, Bob. Why do you even do this? telling you the truth and it occurred to me this week especially because of the help of a friend that it's possible if I were to reorient myself towards praise to God I could actually delight in the image of God Stamped upon me. That the image of God is stamped so deeply upon me. That I'm here because he called. Oh, I know it up here. But not so much down here on some days. That the image of God is stamped so deeply upon me. That I could walk away, even if I'm exhausted emotionally. And say to myself, Thank you. Thank you, God for placing your image deep within me. I think praise, my goodness, it's the second Sunday in a row I got choked up. I think praise, if we really enter into it deeply, can absolutely transform us. And I want it to transform me in a new kind of way. And I wish it would transform you in a new kind of way. I wish you would take it up as the tapestry of your life. Let me put it another way. You know how to do this. You do it in all kinds of other venues. Just bring it home and do it for God. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you uh, for the grace that comes to us. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, we thank you uh, that you uh, walked in our place. You understand us inside and out. And you gave us uh, the promise of eternal life. And more than that, Lord, you told us that life wasn't just about a feeling that we have inside or the fact that after we're dead, we're going to rise again. You said that life was huge and global and eternal and it was about every part of the world you've created and we're just a part of that. And we just thank you for that gift, Lord of life. But we pray, Lord, as we think about what it means to serve you, that you will help us to enter into praise in such a way that we can experience that life in a new kind of way right here, right now. And that the life we experience, while incomplete, will be a homing signal concerning eternity when it will be complete. Praise, Lord, puts us in touch with the only thing that's eternal, which is you. We pray that will happen for us this week by your grace. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, we should probably praise or the rocks are going to start crying out. So let's stand up and worship.